for May the 4th, 2021. I'm Steve Fodor. And I am the force-wielding Chip Hassan-Fly. <laughs> and I'm Pampador, wearing a t-shirt. <laughs> yes, May the 4th be with you. No, Pam, the answer is not, and also with you. That's Catholics. <laughs> the, 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 the response is always. That's the response. Happy May the 4th to everyone. One of the two Star Wars days in May, the second one being the premiere of Star Wars in 1977, which was May 25th, Geek Pride Day. So there, we've gotten that out of the way, and we can move on to our book this week. We're starting a new book, everyone. We are starting a science fiction novel, Pam. I don't know if you're aware of science fiction, fiction but is my favorite genre and guess what this is not a time travel book this is the calculating stars by mary robinette kowal it was published in 2018 and i declared it my favorite book of 2018 i hope that you are all enjoying part one chapters one through nine that we read for this week absolutely although i would say Okay, it's not time travel technically, but it's like the very, very closest thing you can get. And we'll talk about alternative history, my friend. So this is set in 1952, which was a very interesting time in American history. We had a very limited space program in 1952. And this book starts with the statement that uh, the space program was actually different in this alternate history, that they were celebrating the third satellite launched by the United States in 1952 in this alternate history, where in real history, Sputnik was the Russian satellite that was the first artificial satellite that was actually launched in 1957 in real reality. What, what Something I didn't put in the notes, but I, I want to mention is at the end of World War II, um, the Soviet Union and the United States, they began the, the Cold War. So it's this quick grab for anyone in the, uh, the rocket, uh, uh, aerospace, anything of that nature. So all those German scientists that were working for the United States, we could think of Project Paperclip on how to get them into the United States and how you know some of those things work. Um, and that was the genesis of what would become, in our reality, the space program. But for this, it looks like you got a little bit uh, of quicker start. Yeah, they had to start up the space program a lot faster in their story today because of a meteorite that strikes the east coast of the United States, destroying the entire east coast from, from up into Canada all the way down into Florida. The East Coast is destroyed by this meteorite. Millions of people lose their lives, and we are thrown into an adventure very quickly in Chapter 1 here. So, so Washington looks like it's destroyed. Baltimore's destroyed. The uh, the reporters are coming to us from Philadelphia, and uh, that that's fascinating too. Which is Philadelphia being the genesis of uh, the United States as far as the the uh, Declaration of Independence and things of that nature going on there. Mm-hmm. So we we are introduced very quickly to our protagonist Elma York and her husband Nathaniel they survive this meteorite because they just happen to be in the right place they just happen to see the flash of light they just happen to get to the right places there's a lot of discussion here about luck 
versus fate in the opening of this book? I think there's a lot of discussion of scientific acumen as well, because they recognize what's happening. So I wouldn't say it's just luck. I mean, they're in a cabin. If they had stayed there, they would have died. They actually like rushed through, used their car as a shield. They are scientists who use their scientific knowledge to save their own lives. So I don't know if I'm totally buying luck versus fate. But the author does point out the luck. The the sure. protagonist does say we were very lucky. We got these few things that happened in chapter one that lined up just right for us to survive. Of now, course. of course, protagonists have to survive chapter one. Otherwise, it'd be a very <laughs> short book. But that, that idea of how convenient some of those things were in chapter one comes up in the text. The author writes that they were lucky. Mm -hmm. So yes, you're right. There's knowledge, there's scientific knowledge behind their choices and, and some luck. Absolutely. Of course. And again, like we're just, we're going to be following in a, anytime you have some sort of apocalyptic event, I mean, you can follow one or two people who die, but that's not super interesting. You want to see like, who's, who's the best person who survived, right? Who was lucky enough to survive. And certainly they made a little bit of their own luck although they certainly were very fortunate not to have been, you know, right in DC. And it's very interesting to me that these two characters who are a scientist and a mathematician, a rocket scientist, no less, these people have the strength and the will to get through the adventure of chapter one. It's interesting to me that chapter one, I don't have the personal feeling of the emergency that these two characters are in. I think, I really believe this, that the author was able to portray the shock of the moment and, and to say that these characters were in shock and they were just acting in an automatic way to escape. There, there was no adventure that I was feeling as the reader in chapter one. It wasn't until chapter two where I, I got that sense of fear from the protagonist. You get this sort of uh, Steven Spielberg movie type of um, play uh, as far as as you're reading the story. It's like we're, we've thrown you into the adventure. We've got our two characters here. And this is what's happening to them. This is what they're feeling. Just a, there was a really good uh, grounding effect as far as knowing what was going on and, and sort of the, the, the feelings of the time as the adventure kind of begins. And there's a very cinematic feeling to the first several chapters as like, you know, they go to the road and they see just a human arm, right? That, that's cinematic, right? Mm -hmm. It's super easy to picture someone making a movie out of this. I don't know if that's in the plans, but I wouldn't be surprised if it, if it is eventually. The idea of, we know they're the protagonists. We are introduced to them that first page uh, the, the young lady that is reading this along with us who lives in my house said she loved that first page. That idea of these two people were away from their jobs because their jobs were done and they were away for the weekend together as a loving married couple and they were stargazing. <laughs> I love this quote. He had inherited this cabin from his father, and we used to go up there for stargazing, by which I mean sex. 
Oh, don't pretend that you're shocked, the author writes in the first page of this book. This is a healthy, young, married couple who are in in a loving relationship. And it's wonderful. I, I love the comedy of that before we get to the tragedy of the meteor. Uh, Meteorite. It, it also brings us back to the 1950s because I don't think any of us would be shocked that when people go to their summer cabin, they might actually have a little sex. You know, but that's like a very 1950s, like placing you in the moment. And, and think about what, what they're doing. They're, they're um, you know, potentially procreating. The humanity is ending. The world world is ending, and they're going to have to go you know, on their journey, you know, to wherever they end up going. So this metaphor. is this is this is. I mean, I think that there's a lot of there was a lot of care in making setting this up for this adventure. And these characters are so well defined. These are some of my favorite characters that I've read in the last few years: Elma and Nathaniel. They are very powerful in their use of thinking, the scientist and the mathematician, and they are very human. They are very well-defined in all of the things that they do. So I think one of the things that Kowal does really well to get you to that place, Steve, where you feel like you know the characters, is she puts them in this very traumatic situation. It's a really powerful writerly thing to do. Just put characters in a super trauma, and then you find out who they are. And so... This trauma where most of the Eastern seaboard is destroyed, and yet you do have like survivors here and there, I think it's very, very tough because of course, Elma realizes that surely her parents are dead, but she doesn't know it for sure because of course we see that her brother imagines that she's dead and she's not. So there's that little bit of hope that maybe her parents somehow weren't where they were supposed to be and maybe they did survive maybe her grandmother has survived it's funny that you don't really get a sense of their friends at all so they like the focus is on her parents and her elderly grandmother and i just i don't know if again i'm only through part one which i really enjoyed but i'm like do these people have friends i mean there's no mention whatsoever of a sort of com the community that they live in but we don't know if people are alive or dead. And so at a certain point in this part one, she goes into a synagogue and realizes, like, I'm admitting right now that my family is really dead. Mm -hmm. And so that's a moment where I think we see really into her. And in terms of her mourning process, it's really interesting how the author, this is very similar to what you were saying, Steve, about how the shock is written. I think that the morning, she just writes a week of mourning in a single sentence and moves on like, oh, you're not interested in that, dear reader. She says, when the week of Shiva passed, I called every mechanic in the phone book. Here's what I found out. So she didn't actually, like, she doesn't tell us, she doesn't go deep into that morning. And you get that, it's like, she's not a person who can talk about her own feelings very well. She just says, trust me, I mourned for one week. Cheers. But we also get the insight here that she is a Jewish character. Going into a synagogue is where she has her mourning. And that week of Shiva, that idea of mourning for one week, and, and it is a, a whole process. And the, the Jewish faith has a very clear plan for what to do when you have mourning. And... and I I was going to say, that's what I found fascinating because you get in some, 
as a non-Jewish person, you get insight on this wonderful process that, that their faith is set out so that, you know, this is what happens when this happens. And uh, what was the, the thing that I, I, I the, what I took from it most was you don't, when, you're, when you go to a, a mourning situation, you do not enter the conversation. The mourning person invites you into the conversation. So you can stand beside the mourning person. You are there to support the mourning person. But until the mourning person says something to you, do not enter the conversation to them. And I, I was just like, oh, that, how, how intelligent. What an what a, what a incredible uh, remembrance. So that when I'm in that situation, this is what I do. Jewish people, once again, showing the world how to, how to mourn properly. And it's interesting because she almost goes to tear the shirt that she's wearing, which is what a Jewish person would normally do when they hear that someone has died. And then she realizes it's like literally the only clothing she owns. And so she actually dispenses with the ritual of Kriya. So it's kind of, I mean, and you, she tells us she's not a practicing Jew, but it's still, it's a huge part of her identity, even though um, she's, she's not practicing, which I think is, I mean, based on the latest census, a very familiar position for about 25% of Americans today, mm -hmm. my less familiar position in 1953. Right. This is one of those points in the book where the author is certainly talking about more the time that she is writing than the time she's writing about the messages about faith and about religion from 1950 are certainly different because this character has that 21st century idea of possibly maybe questioning her faith, questioning her religion. And uh, which, which would certainly be for that time, very challenging. Mm -hmm. She certainly would have hidden that from anybody, even if she had those feelings that would have been hidden from from everybody around her. I, this character is wonderful. We, we learn throughout this how she is not exactly uh, faithful to the Jewish faith, but she does ask to not have ham in her sandwich because she thinks that maybe that's a good idea. Maybe right now is a good idea to fall back to some of those practices of her faith. She chooses her battle, though. Wasn't it like the next morning she had something that was fried in bacon fat or something like that? It's like, well, I won't choose. I won't, I won't fight this one. <laughs> what else grabbed you about the character of Elma York? Well, clearly, she's a, she's a female mathematician and she's a pilot. So she's a very unusual person. So... You're totally right though. Like she performs her religious identity in a way that's, you know, acceptable for the time, but we know she's a very unusual person. And so she's, she's a woman who's doing pretty feminist things for the 1950s. And she's married to a guy who's, you know, Nathaniel, they're, they're super close and he's a great guy, but she notices, I, I really like this quotation um, where she's thinking about interacting with the government. And she says, my husband was a good man. He believed in me. And he also had a huge blind spot because he didn't see how people would ignore what I said until he repeated it. 
And it's so funny because you think, wow, that's so from the 1950s. But like ask any woman in upper administration of any corporation or even academia, this is a really familiar position for women to be in where you say something and people are like, whatever. And then a guy repeats the exact same thing and everyone's like, fantastic idea. Mm-hmm. So this is something that I feel like Cobal, again, she's writing from 2018 and thinking back to this notion of like a male feminist still might not be able to do the analysis of um, gender dynamics the way a woman could do quite easily. This, this reminds me of the, the best uh, Star Trek film, Galaxy Quest, and Scorny Weaver's character. And her yes, job is totally. to repeat. The, her job is to repeat what the computer does. <laughs> you guys, I rewatched that in January of 2021. And oh my goodness, like it's totally one of my favorites. But it was so, I was so ready for a rewatch. That is such a hilarious insight. She complains the entire film, like <laughs> they look at my boobs. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm not sure about the Elma York <laughs> Sigourney Weaver from Galaxy Quest comparison, but I still very much take your point and enjoy the reference. <laughs> she's she's a very powerful character. She is a very strong protagonist, and and we get most of that knowledge from the narration of what she's thinking, not what she's actually saying or doing. This is brilliant characterization. And I thought it was super interesting that her husband, Nathaniel, asks her to do the calculations to find out how big the meteorite was. And so she actually goes about and does these very, very complex calculations. And then I was kind of fascinated that she refused to go with him to present it. She didn't even want to be there. And he's like, Elma, if people ask certain questions, I'm actually, I don't have enough math to answer every question. And she, she said, I can't, I have my period. (laughs) That's so 1950s, right? (laughs) Well, but it's interesting because that's a manipulation, right? I mean, the way that she structures it, and I am in no way trying to discount various people's experiences of premenstrual syndrome, of course, but the way she describes it, this is not, there is nothing physiological about this. She just doesn't want to be at that meeting, and she doesn't want to be treated the way she's always treated at those meetings. That's, a, that's brilliant. I mean, that's a, that's a brilliant kind of, um, I don't know, design that the author used to create that information. To send out that information. Anyway, I, bravo, good job. And it's like, it's so, it's really like sort of hostile on her part, right? So mm-hmm. she doesn't say, oh, I have a headache. She says, oh, I have a female complaint, gentlemen. So, I mean, there's something really sort of punk about that move. And then the, the lie. Passive aggressive. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. And then the lie gets extended where she has to then continue the lie to her friend Myrtle, who is the person who is having her at her home as a refugee. And she has to continue that lie. And she, the, the author notes, boy, it's hard to keep a lie going. It would be so much easier for me to admit my lie, but that's not what I'm going to do right now. Right. And I think that it's super 
I mean, we learned so many things about Elma in these first few chapters, including, I thought it was interesting, she has never been in a Black person's house before. And so that really reminds us, the 21st century reader, of exactly how deeply segregation runs in 1950s America. So funny for me because I'm reading Stephen King's 112263 right now. That's the other novel I've got on the go. And it's set in the late 1950s through to 63. And you know, this notion of segregation in this time, it's a, just a huge facet of American life that, you know, depending on how much history you've read might be at the forefront of your mind or not. The other thing I would say is super important about Elma is she's a great intersectional character, meaning that she is female, she's Jewish, and she's a mathematician. So she's a very, she's very unusual in those three big ways. And so each of those characteristics interacts with each other to create a really complex character. You, you missed the fourth part. She's Southern. She's from Charleston, mm-hmm. South Carolina. That makes a and, huge difference. The, the idea of a Southern Jew is something that I don't think I ever thought of before I read this book. Well, I'll, I'll, as a person living in the South, I can promise you there are synagogues around. But you, when you met me and you moved up to Chicago, you told me that you haven't really interacted with Jewish people before you moved to the Chicago area. Listen, we have a Jewish synagogue and a Catholic church. I mean, they, they exist in the South, I promise you. <laughs> you know <laughs> there's that a they lot of ba- There's a lot of Baptists <laughs> and a lot of Methodists and a lot of evangelicals. <laughs> <laughs> a lot. <laughs> so you're so your Jewish slash Catholic slash Buddhist slash Hoovian friend is is all about <laughs> knowing who he is. And you you've never met a Southern Jew. I've never met a Southern Jew that I'm aware of. And she goes into oh. the I don't think so. Not that I'm aware of. The the author goes into the difference between those two intersections of who this character is in such an interesting way. The idea of of the southern accent being added to the the words from the the, the Jewish language is hilarious to me. I, I think that is that's the humor of the book. The author was having a lot of fun playing with that. And when she breaks out and goes right into a deep Southern um, uh, comment, just to be able to prove that her Southerness, I mean, it's just hilarious. And her outward way that she carries herself because she is this Southern character in the 1950s versus the inner dialogue that we get is just, she is one of my favorite characters from the last five years of, of books. One thing that the author does that's really good is she lets us forget about the trauma and then reminds us every once in a while. And one of the lines that that I really, it really struck me was when Nathaniel asks Elma to do the calculations to find out how big the meteor was, she understands that normally this would go to the people at Langley because those are the scientists of the time. But then she realizes very quickly that she's the one who has to do this calculation because all of those people have been killed. That I love how the author is able to throw that switch for me. 
All right, so I, I don't know if it's ever brought up whether she was either the product of an immigrant or she had to come to the United States during World War II. We, I don't think we, that was revealed to us. But what I will say is that there seemed to be a parallel. That think of the brain drain that Europe felt because of the Holocaust, because of the number of people that were killed during this period of time. So if, if you think about that that was, as we're in 52, you know, we're, we're dealing with something that's, you know, what, 15 years old? So, you know, around World War II period of time. You know, it, this is like, um, this is just another brain drain of the world. Mm-hmm. We've got some other great characters. We've, we've mentioned Elma, who is a fantastic character. Her husband, Nathaniel, who is, as, as you said, Pam, and I found that very interesting, a feminist of the 1950s in his own way. Do you think that's correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't think Elma would have married someone misogynistic, you know, he's, but he's like, you know, a low key male feminist of the 1950s. Okay. But he does say, he has this great line, the fate of the world depends on keeping my wife happy and healthy. I'm not even sure it's an exaggeration. So he's, you know, he doesn't take credit for her math or anything like that. As you could imagine another male character doing at the time, he's like, my wife is super smart. Her math is way better than that of anyone in this room. Listen to her. Beyond that, he well, would have been that? offered credit. The men right. in the room would have congratulated this rocket scientist on doing this math. And he's immediately saying, no, no, no. This is my genius of a wife who did all this. Well, what was, I was going to say, what was the name of the book or movie that came out? Um, that was on the women, uh, the black women who supported NASA. Yes. Such race. Yes. Hidden this figures. Is- and actually, the front cover of my Mary Robinette Kowal novel has a quote from Katie Coleman, astronaut, an alternate history of spaceflight that reminds me of everything I loved about hidden figures. I wouldn't be surprised if these two books do get compared a little bit. And Elma was one of those calculators. She was doing the math for these satellite launches in this alternate history. She was one of those people, despite the fact that she was not a black woman, she was Jewish and another one of those groups of people that might not have gotten the same opportunities as other groups of people in the 1950s. So in this story, Our protagonists are escaping the destruction of this meteorite and they get into their plane, which just happens to be undamaged. They get into the sky and they see from the sky the the vast destruction, at least some of it, really just a corner of it. And they happened upon uh, another pilot Major Eugene Lindholm, who is flying his jet and radios to them and recognizes Nathaniel York's name from the press from the satellite launch, and he escorts them to the military base. So uh, back to the luck of the first chapter, this is part of it. Like, oh, there was, there's another plane and he has a radio and he recognizes Nathaniel York's name. Oh yeah. Good job. So they get back to the military. I'm sorry. So they get to the military base and major Lindholm offers them to share his home on the base. Then we get the clairvoyance, Steve. 
well it's chapter one of a of an adventure book it's okay <laughs> but we find out in a very well written reveal that eugene lindholm is a black man in 1950s air force and this is very well put to say that we are going to experience that segregation of the 1950s here. Well, and, and it's important to know that the civil, right, civil rights movement hasn't really started yet. The civil rights movement doesn't really begin until 1954 mm -hmm. here in our timeline. And this, once again, our story takes place in 1952. Right. Martin Luther King Jr. was still doing his doctorate work in 1952. He did not graduate until 1954. And the uh, Montgomery bus boycott was 1955 so we are just off of that jump in reality for the civil rights movement there now i really liked major eugene lindham's wife myrtle i thought she was a great great character so she is an excellent hostess to these refugees that have arrived and um, I, I like the, the way that Elma understands that. She says, I could almost see her folding her own shock and grief away into neat squares so she could be a good hostess. So we get the feeling as Elma realizes she's never been in the house of a black person before that maybe Myrtle Lindholm has not really known a Jewish person before or mm -hmm. not, not closely. And so these are two women whose husbands are military and whose husbands are gonna be like dealing with the problem and they're acting in support roles. And Myrtle is much more comfortable with that than Elma is. And they're also like, they're both, they seem like they're both really, really kind women, women we would wanna be friends with, but it's also hard. Like they just are both so outside of their comfort zone. You know, having this Jewish woman staying in your house realizing she's like, I don't eat ham. And you're like, oh, oh my goodness. Like, I didn't realize that. Like it's, you know, so I feel like she does a really good job of explaining that. And then there comes the moment where she overhears Myrtle and Eugene talking about how Myrtle has gone to volunteer. That's what women are supposed to do, volunteer at the hospital. That's what Elma should be doing instead of all this math. And Elma overhears them talking about how all of these refugees, plane after plane after plane of refugees who are coming in, there's not a single black one among them. Mm -hmm. And Elma is stunned and she feels like, you can feel how sick to her stomach she is. How did I not notice that? And it's a, I think that's a super powerful moment. There's so many, there's so many of those moments that the author is, is giving us as readers you may not have realized this. And here, our characters don't realize these differences. Well, and, and I'll use a, a couple of different ways of thinking about it, too. In the military, you have a chain of command. And that chain of command is not color-based. It's on merit-based. Now, they're working within that structure. But the outside world, that structure should be there but it's not. And there's the big, there's the big slap right there. It's like, holy cow, how did these communities get help? But you know, some others didn't. Wow, that's interesting. I'm not sure 1950s military structures 
didn't see color though, Chip. I feel like there was a lot of segregation even within the military, wasn't there? There was, but in this situation, what what is his, what is the husband's rank? Major. He's a major. Mm-hmm. He's an officer. Mm-hmm. Right. So we have. He's not least... an enlisted. He's not an enlisted person. That means he's educated. And he's given power. So we have at least this one example of this one character who has risen through the ranks despite the separation of peoples in the 1950s. And it's interesting that Elma thinks, perhaps very much like the white reader, that, oh, she could fly her little plane and go rescue Black people. But in fact, what Myrtle and Eugene know is that they have to actually drop flyers in black neighborhoods telling them where to go that it's it, things are things are organized in completely different ways so i feel like the sort of i mean elma has all of this mathematical and scientific knowledge but none of the cultural knowledge mm-hmm. and that Kowal does a fantastic job of showing how each of us has our own little tiny bit of cultural knowledge and, you know, we're constantly challenged with our worldviews when we interact with people different from ourselves. It's absolutely brilliant the way that she brings that knowledge to us. Back to when Elma was looking for a mechanic. She was looking for a mechanic to fix her plane. And she called every mechanic in the phone book. But Myrtle, quote, she gave a little smile. You called all of the white mechanics not everyone who knows planes is in the phone book she says that is a brilliant i love that piece that moment where we are are hit over the head with you didn't think of this just like this character didn't think of it but here it is here's the right solution so well done Then we meet Colonel Stetson Parker, who so far in part one is kind of our antagonist, isn't he? Well, I was going to say not the the Colonel Parker, Steve. No. Not the Colonel. No. He's not not the manager of Elvis. (laughs) (laughs) It's the right time frame, that's for sure. That would have been awesome. We could have met him. (laughs) He's the Colonel Parker. Anyway, um, the Colonel Parker that, that I'm talking about uh, discovered Elvis in 1955. So once again, this is 1952. Mm-hmm. It could uh, still happen in this novel. We don't know, Chip. We don't know. <laughs> Elvis might be the secret to all of this. He joins the army and he just, it, everything's fine. He left the building, Steve. He's taking care of business. <laughs> TCP. <laughs> TCP. <laughs> I would love that. I, now I want to write an alternate alternate history where Elvis is the hero. That that would make me so happy. I'm sure that those those stories are out there somewhere. No and Agri- ship. And I, and Margaret can dance with him. So you know. <laughs> oh, this is the best movie ever made. No chip. This is not that Colonel. Parker, this is this is the guy that Elma knew in the war, and she doesn't like him very much. And I can see why. <laughs> he doesn't want to respect or like her very much because she's a lady pilot. And I don't so- think he sees her at all. I think he sees yeah. right past her. Mm-hmm. And I think once again, 
the author has written that in such a a perfect way for us to understand this character and how he views women and in, and then expanding out upon that how women were viewed in general in the air force it, this is well done although yeah. i will admit yeah. i didn't know that there even were women pilots in the 1940s and 50s that was news to me so this was great Officially, there weren't women pilots. The women were only allowed to fly the planes back and forth from where they were to where they needed to be. And officially, they were never in combat. But Elma explains that sometimes when you're flying a plane, even though you're not in combat, people are shooting at you. And we also get when Elma interacts with Colonel Parker, we kind of see into her, like she can play the game but like her interior monologue is really hostile. So congratulations on your promotion. I smiled the best, bless your heart smile, I could. You must have worked very hard for it. It's like- It's very passive aggressive. Passive aggressive. Oh boy. Well, bless your heart means many, many things in the South. Indeed. (laughs) I I was trying to explain that to my son last week, that the idea of bless your heart is, not very positive sometimes uh, it's sometimes. very I mean, passive aggressive it can be it means i mean it means many things in different contexts it's like if your wife says fine well maybe it's maybe it is fine maybe it isn't it's there to make me dance i don't know what it does you'll find out later <laughs> that's right what do you you didn't read my mind oh my god please god save me <laughs> This this relationship between Colonel Parker and Elma is is very well put together. It, it, I called him the antagonist, but I'm not sure that that's fair. I mean, this is a man versus nature story. So the antagonist is the emergency, not necessarily this man. But there's there's a who there's some scratching between these two. You're still finding the norms of the story, I mean, of the time in the story, though, too. So regardless if you have all the right answers, can you get it to the people where it matters? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, there's, 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 there's the challenge of that. And I think it's fair to call Parker the antagonist for two reasons. First of all, he thinks that the Russians might have sent the meteorite, which is just on the face of it impossible. So like Nathaniel spends a lot of his time and his intellectual capital, making sure to convince this Colonel Parker. The other thing is that because so many people in DC are dead, this guy has suddenly had a gigantic promotion because all the people above him have died. So he's become someone that you have to convince who wouldn't normally have the kind of power he has. Well, as a military person during the Cold War, I mean, that's where the, you know, Maybe that may be your first intuition is, oh my goodness, this was the Russians. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Now, and there's a good example of why there was a divide between the military power and you know, what Washington would have over the military because they would look on a broader sense. But certainly that, that would be something that would, would be considered, in my opinion. 
And because this is seven years after the atomic bomb being dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that is certainly on their forefront of their minds. Even our two protagonists, the scientist and the mathematician, that was their first thought was this must have been a bomb. And then they come to the realization that it was far too big for that. It had to be a meteorite. And I kind of liked the discussion of the difference between a meteor and a meteorite. And how, like, I think Elma even says that, like, it's, it's unfortunate how those terms, like a meteor is something that burns up in the atmosphere and a meteorite is something that actually hits the ground. And she's like, it's unfortunate because meteorite sounds so cute. So at first she, like, corrects people. Then she's like, whatever, we can just call it a meteor if you want. <laughs> and my, I think... My... My first thought on that was, oh, I should note that in my brain. I should always remember that. Me too. And then I was like, <laughs> and then immediately I'm like, yeah, that's, I'm going to use them interchangeably anyway. Because... <laughs> Which I think we've already done in this episode. I think we already have. I think we already did. And, and, and Mary Robinette Kowal mentions it like four or five times I in this know. part. And then, and then gives us that moment where we are excused because everybody forgets and it's fine <laughs> and a meteorite does sound cuter than a meteor like i, I love just linguistically i loved that little analysis so, so guys this brings us to the fact that this is an alternate history now do you guys like this genre why or why not I love this genre. It is not time travel. This is not time travel, but it is as close to time travel as you can get without actually causing time travel. This is an alternate timeline where different things happen and we get to play with all of that history here. I, I agree. I think that the idea is to play. Um, we, we, we have a history that we know um, or we think we know and then we get to play with you know a future that we're 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 in the future, but not that future. And so there's just a lot of you know a lot of toys that the uh, the author can play with here. It's like an exploration of counterfactuals. So what if, right? And so there's this cognitive um, this cognitive science slash literary theorist called Lisa Zunshine that I really love, who writes a lot about like why do we like to read and one of her suggestions, she doesn't talk about alternate history specifically, but I think it really goes nicely, is that when you're reading alternate history, in your mind, you're having two thoughts at once, the actual history or as much of it as you know. And Chip, I love that you make that point, like how much do we ever really know history? Mm -hmm. It's always just a, a mosaic of the perspectives we can gather. And then the alternate history and the pleasure of moving between those two timelines it's mentally, it's very complicated mental task and thus a very pleasurable one. So I feel like the cognitive science is like, when you're reading, if we, if we were actually doing brain scans while we're reading this book, our brains are very, very active in a super pleasurable way. Mm -hmm. And this is, while this is a very deep story as far as there's a lot going on, it's more like an action movie. So you're mm -hmm. kind of just thrust along with it and, um, I, I just find it hits all the good spots. It, it hits all those things that, that I think that if you wanted a beach read or something that um, yep. would take you on adventure, it's, it's perfect for it. Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett led an elite group of scientists into the desert to develop a top secret project known as Quantum Leap. Putting right things that once went wrong and hoping each time that his next leap would be the leap home. 
this is quantum leap, isn't it? This is us being able to experience history, our little knowledge of it, added to this narrative of what could have been. I think of the Marvel What If comic books, which are going to be made into a television series very soon. Uh, the idea of what if Peter Parker was not bitten by the spider and didn't become Spider-Man? What if this happened or that happened? I love those stories. And, and then you throw in the outside force. And so the outside force here is the meteor or meteorite, whichever one I'm going to mess up. Um, but... <laughs> You, you throw in that's that's the um, th that is the thrust to get the story started. Yeah, and one of the things that she does at the start of each chapter is she puts a little news item, and I think that's a really nice way to ground the chapters. Like it brings you right into okay, this is the this is the alternate history that we're in. Here's what's happened on March third, nineteen fifty three. Oh, we're moving ahead. March 3rd, 1956, I peaked at part two, oh, three years. And so, I mean, but that's a really nice way, I think, to ground the story in a really specific history with news items from around the world. I personally love that technique. It, it it's really... like Art Murrow. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Reading giving to us, you, that's the news. Giving us those historic things that uh, again our small knowledge we know edward r murrow we know that he would have been the person to tell us this news so she writes that into the story very well done now this is this is kind of our second climate crisis book here all of a sudden isn't it pam it is and it brings us back to the question that i brought to you guys from amitabh ghosh at the beginning of our last discussion which is to what, what's, what are the benefits of thinking about the climate crisis through science fiction versus through realistic fiction? I can already tell you guys like this book way, way, way better than my literary fiction book that I shared last time. But that, that sort of like, what, you know, what are the affordances of writing an action adventure tale around climate change instead of writing a tale that moves us through boardrooms and decades um, in a more literary fashion. So, so yeah, so in a way, this is like, it's super easy and fun to read, right? So This is a page turner, isn't it? Every page of this book, you want to get to the next piece. I really, I really enjoy this writing. Yes, I'm sorry, I didn't really enjoy our last book. I, I didn't, I, but this, this method certainly gets me thinking about those climate crisis pieces on a fictional level and, and then to think about what we are really doing instead of the other way around. I enjoy this so much more. Right. And then the, the question I think for Gauche and a lot of us who are super worried about the climate crisis is that, is it, is that helpful? I mean, I obviously, as an English prof, I love when people love books, yay, but does it actually activate you to do anything? And I think that one of the, you know, one of the things that Kowal is doing in this book, when we think of it as cli-fi specifically, is the explanation for the weather event that's about to happen is not anthropogenic at all. So there's no blame on human activity. There's no blame on corporations. There's, you know, no need 
to imagine the end of capitalism in order to deal with this problem. This is a meteorite, man. That's nobody's fault. You know, you can try to blame the Russians, but it just doesn't work scientifically. So that takes a giant emotional piece out of the equation, right? These people don't have to say whose fault was this as we do in the real world. Um, well, I mean, we could argue that it's not very productive to do that, which is certainly what I would argue. But I mean, that does become part of the rhetoric around the climate crisis is who caused it, who should fix it. But in this book, we don't even have to have that conversation at all. It's meteorite. Well, part of the, the back of the notes I put up at top talk a little bit about how this has happened in the earth in the past. So, I mean, just recently we found... Um, well, what can, could be considered a climate-altering um, meteor that hit in Greenland. We found two of them. And uh, that hit about uh, 12,000 years ago. We may have had multiple ones around uh, 12 and 10,000 years ago. And they changed the Earth dramatically at that time. And at one time, there was a mile of ice over, over Canada. Well, that mile of ice doesn't exist anymore. And possibly that is due to these meteors hitting, and possibly it's a combination of factors. But it's interesting to think of this new idea that maybe meteorites have struck the Earth recently and have caused some of the climate crisis in and of themselves. Well, of that time. So, you know, and then we have the Tuskegee event back in 1908 that where the... Um, you know, basically it talked about, what is it? Um, 80 million trees over 830 square miles were basically destroyed when you know, a meteor enters the, um, the atmosphere. I mean, these are just, these are things that just are out of our control. They just, you, you wake up one day and it just happens. And the interesting fact about that one is that it's classified as an impact event, although they've never found a crater where it actually made impact. It still impacted the trees just by being in the air. Sure, sure. Interesting. I mean, these, these are just, this is a, um, certainly a very interesting proposition. So this brings us to the ending of part one. And I, I want to point out that part one is only these chapters one through nine. And the rest of the book is part two, which is a very interesting choice in writing. But how does part one end? Well, this is, a, this is actually, I think, a really great scene where Elma actually, after using her fictional period as an excuse to not meet with people the first time, Nathaniel insists and she agrees that she should accompany him to meet with the acting president. Now, strangely, even as I'm reading this alternate history by Stephen King, I've also been watching a Designated Survivor, which is a few years old, where like you have this kind of acting president, just like President Brandon here, is President Brandon, I think he was the Secretary of Agriculture, then he's the highest ranking person left after the meteorite event. And so I think the ending is really interesting. Um, after they discuss what's happening with the impending climate crisis, it ends with Brannon. Gentlemen, Mrs. York, there is a saying in Switzerland, ne pas mettre tous ses oeufs dans le même panier, which you will know in English as, do not put all your eggs in one basket. The United Nation feels that in addition to reducing the damage here on earth, we must also look beyond our planet. It is time, gentlemen, to colonize outer space. Da, da, da. <laughs> Part one. Now, 
catch in that final quote that I want to look at. So first of all, he starts out gentlemen and Mrs. Gork, right? So bringing attention to the fact that there's one woman in this full room of high ranking military and scientific men. And so he has to separate her out because she doesn't, you know, she doesn't fall into that category of gentlemen. Now, why in the world does he practice his French with these guys? Ne pas mettre tous ses œufs dans le même panier. I mean, this is a pretty familiar expression of not putting all your eggs in one basket, right? Like you don't have to say it comes from the Swiss. Why do you think he does that, you guys? I I don't know. I think is this a, a power play on his part to show how intelligent he is in this room of intelligent people? Does he feel as the secretary of agriculture thrust into the presidency that he needs to show that he is as intelligent as these people? That's my best guess. Yeah, I don't, I don't know either. I mean, we don't, we've only just met him, but I did pause there and you guys obviously did too to think, Huh. he's like performing his linguistic knowledge. But I mean, Elma's also pretty impressed by him because of course, as the secretary of ag, in a way that's the perfect person because he actually understands, you know, at one point she says, it's gonna make a two, uh, it's gonna make a two degree Celsius difference, which is <clears throat> not coincidentally exactly what we're facing in the next 30 years in, in, on earth, in 2021 but like some people are like two degrees who cares and president brannon immediately sees what that means crop wise so we leave on this cliffhanger it's time gentlemen to colonize outer space this is a book about leaving the earth this alternate history where in 1952 the space program was in a very very early stage in our reality they're a little bit further ahead in this alternative reality they've launched three satellites and it's time for humans to leave the earth it's fascinating to me how they got to that where elma is the mathematician who does the math to figure out that this is an extinction level event and the only possibility for any humans to survive is to leave the planet can we boldly go where no one has gone before that's right that's right <laughs> but i think it's also like the not putting all your eggs in one basket they are going to try to save the planet so they're not saying that's the only option but they not only have a number of different possibilities to actually mitigate the climate crisis on earth they want to do both things which i think is you know, always a good idea. Diversify. You're right. You are absolutely right. I I emphasize the colonizing outer space. The author did not. You're right. So maybe you have to go to the center of the earth. You never know. <laughs> I heard it's very nice. In the 19th a little warm, century. A little warm. <laughs> in the 19th century, there's a whole genre of science fiction that what's it called, Steve? I always forget the name of it. But these all these stories Journey, like about journey to the center of the earth exactly there's like a whole genre of novels that that tell that story mm -hmm. the lost world 
There's a Peter Cushing one where they go to the center of the earth and it's lovely. And it's, based, it's lovely. Exactly. It's, it's very, very loosely based on the HG Wells, but boy, it is not based on the HG Wells it's whatsoever. It's not a fiery pit. It's just a utopia in the center of the earth. Right. <laughs> a little bit different than the Will Ferrell one a few years ago, right? Oh, Land of the Lost. Oh, boy. Oh, Ooh, I didn't see that one. You didn't watch Land of the Lost? As a kid, did you watch Land of the Lost? It was a children's program. I did not. Oh, we can't We can't go on. <sighs> <laughs> That's all right. But should we go on? Should we go on reading this book? I, I think, think I think we should. I think this is a page turner. I this think is that, a lot of fun. I think that you and I want to read the next section and we want to discuss it next week. Your assignment for next week is the beginning of part two, chapters 10 through 19. And we'll see what adventures we get into as we go forward into uh, boldly going where no person has gone before, Chip. <laughs> the force be with you, Steve. <laughs> Happy May the 4th, everyone. I think we have enough information to survive another week. What do you think, Chip? Only if we can come back next week, Steve. What do you think, Pam? I'm in. All right. We would love to hear from you. I hope that you're reading this along with us. I've sent out a lot of emails to a lot of people asking them to read along with us with this book because I really enjoy this one. Are you reading along with us? We would love to hear from you. Give us a call or a text. Our phone number is 805-410-4867. Send us an email, sandwiches at irregular hours at gmail.com. Our website is sandwiches at irregularhours.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We're on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and YouTube. I want to thank you again for listening to Sandwiches at Regular Hours. I'm Steve Fodor. And Chip has a And I'm Pam Bedard. See you in the future.